Children's ministry always provides some wonderful opportunities in preaching. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had an explosion right here uh, as I was preaching a sermon, and a, a bottle blew up, literally blew up all over this auditorium. And, and today we have um, Noah's Ark over here. And I was thinking, I was just talking with Jared, actually. I said, you know, we don't even have to leave Hebrews, and I have two opportunities with all these animals. He has a sign here that says doves for sale, even though I know they're pigeons. But, um, you know, we're talking about sacrifices lately. No, we're not, not going to do that. So what we're going to have to do is jump over to Hebrews 11 instead, and where it talks about Noah. We'll open one of the windows, and at the end of the service, we'll release one of the... No. Well, it's a joy to have you here with us today as we turn our attention to God's Word. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin with verse 26 and the verses following. Uh, Hebrews is toward the back of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation and a few short letters like James and First and Second Peter. Uh, while you're turning there, I'd like to briefly introduce you uh, to why we do what we do when we meet together as a church. Uh, you, might, you might be here as a member of Dwitty Free and, and you've been attending here for years. Maybe you've, you're here as a guest this morning. Perhaps you're here because of your family came to VBS this week. And perhaps Sunday morning church services is a relatively new experience to you. But ultimately, we, we gather at church every week as Christians to worship our God, Jesus Christ. And, and Sunday morning is an opportunity for us to participate in worship as a community. And ideally, what it should do then is it should be an encouragement that kindles within each one of us the desire and, and the practice of worshiping our God that permeates every area of our life and it permeates into the entire week. And so when we gather together as a community, there's various facets of our worship and various reasons why we do what we do at Dwitty Free and, and other churches that you'll, you'll visit uh, from time to time. You'll notice that we sing, and our songs are not the popular hits that you hear on KISS FM, but we specifically, we choose songs each week that not only engage our emotions and the heart, but are also intended to lead us into thinking great thoughts about our God. To, to contemplate who He is, and then to respond to Him as we make decisions of the will as we walk in obedience to Him. Uh, you'll notice that, that prayer is an important part of our services and part of our worship. It's, it's more than just a ceremony. It's more than just ritual, but prayer is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to spend time with our God and to call on Him and, and to call out to our Redeemer and to praise Him and to give Him thanks as we, as we turn to Him. He tells us that He listens and he listens to our prayers. And then, of course, you'll see that our worship incorporates living as part of community. So we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. But you'll also find that, that a central part of our worship in church is our attention to the Bible. Uh, we believe that God has spoken to us in this book. And that everything that we need for life and godliness is, is found written here. And, and so... You'll notice that a large portion of our time every week is devoted to reading in God's Word and, and preaching God's Word. And when I preach a sermon every week, I, I don't spend my week trying to come up with content that will inspire people or, or make them feel guilty according to the standards that I think they should feel guilty about. Um, instead, what we do here at Dwitty Free is we turn to the book that God inspired and we seek to understand and explain what God has given to us in His Word. It's great having a curriculum 
the, it keeps me off getting, getting, it keeps me from getting on top of my, my soapbox all the time and preaching the same five sermons over and over again with just different content. And so when God's word is, is, is being preached, what we do is we're, we're preaching the entire counsel of, of what he's given to us. And so we, we regularly go through the scripture in that way. And so that's why you'll find at Dwitty Free that, that we spend several weeks, sometimes several months, uh, studying one book of the Bible. And, and week by week, we work our way through the text of God's Word. We seek to understand what He has uh, to offer to us here, and, and then to live our lives by the principles that He teaches us there. And, and one of the greatest benefits of this is that the text of God's Word ends up driving the content of what we preach from this pulpit. And our desire is to engage with whatever passage we come to and respond to what God has, has written there. It's, uh, it's interesting for me as past, pastor every VBS Sunday. We, we, I know we have guests here, and so there's, there's uh, the question, do I, do I leave the sermon we're in and, and preach something that's specific for an audience that, that isn't normally here in our church sometimes? Do I, do I preach a sermon that has this or that? And usually what I end up doing is I usually continue on in the, the series that we're at, and that's what we're going to do today. Um, but today we're in the book of Hebrews, and we come to a really difficult passage, actually, and I prayed about this and decided, you know what, we're going to continue here, and it's a great opportunity for those of you who go to other churches, or maybe you're looking for a church, to see what normal church service looks like here, other than Noah's Ark and, and all the, the booths all around us. We believe that God's Word, uh, the book of Hebrews, as we've been looking at this, uh, one of the major themes of this book is that Jesus is superior. It was written to a small church that was mostly composed of, of Jewish Christians, and, and they were facing some temptations in their life. Uh, for many of them, they were facing new persecutions that were coming along that, that were challenging their faith and challenging their walk, making them ask questions about how they were supposed to live that maybe they hadn't asked before. They were facing these new persecutions, and some of them were considering maybe going back to their, formus, their former religious life that was centered around worship in Jerusalem. And this group of Christians, they had decided to follow Jesus, because, um, but, but just as it is for all of us, um, they found themselves tempted to return to that former way of life, to go back. Because the world always calls out, and it says to us in various ways, come back, hey, listen, don't you remember how great it was before Jesus? Come back and enjoy all those things that brought you satisfaction in life. Trust me, this will bring you more satisfaction than this Jesus that you now worship. You don't need that church stuff. You don't need this relationship with Him. Come back to the life that you were used to before you turned from your sin and found mercy at the cross. And the world calls out to us and says, don't you remember? Come back. Come back. And so the author of Hebrews writes this letter, which is really a sermon that he's put into a letter form, to show them how Jesus is superior to everything that their former way of life was offering them. He's superior to all the angels of heaven. He's superior to the old religious system and all the rituals that they had to follow. Uh, that's why the birds are going to be saved today, because Jesus has offered a sacrifice, so they don't have to sacrifice their lives for our sins anymore. Jesus is superior to all the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, and what He accomplished by dying on the cross in our place, it provided a final solution to our sin. And this is why we no longer make sacrifices of animals on an altar. 
And so here in chapter 10, starting in verse 26, we come to the fourth of five warning passages. And as we've seen throughout Hebrews, these warning passages can be a bit difficult. They're very stern. They're very harsh in some instances. Uh, they're bold warnings. Probably some of the, the boldest warnings passages in all of the New Testament. These warnings passages are the author's way of engaging his audience the people that he's writing to, the people that he preached to. And it was his way of engaging us who are reading this text 2,000 years later. And these warning passages, really, they're, they're a wake-up call. They're a wake-up call to each one of us that we should, it should give us cause to, to stop, to ponder eternity, to ponder where we are at, and, and understand the eternal ramifications of either believing what God says about Jesus or walking away from him. And so let's start by reading the first few verses. Uh, but before we do that, please join me in prayers. We just ask him to help us understand what he says here and to give us wisdom as we respond in faith. Just please join me in prayer. Father, we do turn our attention to your word here. We will read it. We will seek to understand it. And Lord, I, I pray that you would give us wisdom for not only knowing what it says, having ears to hear, minds to understand, but Lord, please give us hearts that would engage with Your Word in obedience. I pray that You would challenge us and beckon us to a life that is filled with a joy that comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ and walking in Him. Help us to see how to do that today. And I pray that Your Word would transform us so we look more like Jesus. Amen. My intention was to go through the end of chapter 10 today, and so I've broken this passage up into three sections. We're just going to get to that first section today. Uh, Jesus, again, is superior to all the other somethings that, that you may be tempted to go back to. And so we're exhorted in this passage here at the end of chapter 10 to endure until we receive the promise. And first, in today's passage, we're going to encounter this harsh warning that should get every, everyone pause as we consider our sin and God's response to it. And then verse 32, which we'll start looking at next week, Hebrews softens that, that warning and, and, he, and he brings comfort to this, the same people. And then in the third section, he calls them to endure to the end. But let's start in verse 26, and if you would read today's passage with me uh, as we... Verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctif was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know... Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These six verses are, are probably some of the sternest words that we've found in the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, this is, it's, an, it's a harsh warning. It, when, I, when I was about five years old, I, I remember having a very stern warning from my mother. And uh, I didn't like it at the moment. I didn't like what her words were to me. I didn't like the, the manner in which she spoke to me. I felt insulted that, that my, my, my pride was, I was called, my, my decisions were called into question, and so my pride got the better of me. 
And I, in this particular instance, I, I was standing in the kitchen with my mother, and I noticed something on the wall that had I never really paused to really consider before. And there's this plug outlet. I was five years old and had never really seen what it did other than you plug things into it and things work. And so while my mom was cooking dinner, I proceeded to reach my little hands to put my fingers inside one of those little slots on the wall. And before I could do so, my mother yanked me away, very rudely, and she issued one of the harshest warnings that she had ever given to me. Don't do that. It'll hurt. I thought you could have, you know, you could have said something a little bit nicer, right? We hear warnings from our parents and from others, from God, and we think, how rude! How dare they speak to me this way? And we come to a passage like this and we go, wow, these six verses are a wake-up call. A harsh warning for each of us to examine our hearts and give consideration to the fearful expectation of God's judgment that God's Word tells us about and it warns us about. It's a harsh warning and one that we must take with great earnestness not because God's being rude, not because God's up there going, watch this, but because He cares about us and He loves us and He wants what's best for us. He, he's the one who created us. He knows how He made us. And so He warns us when we're going off track. He teaches us to love the truth. And so my challenge for us today is that we come to one of these harshest warnings in the book of Hebrews that we would truly give consideration to what He's saying. In the past, there are those who have misrepresented this passage. They, they see a warning like this, and there are, a lot of, there are a lot of people who think a passage like this is a great opportunity to, to make people feel more guilty about what I think you should feel guilty about. And, and so I'm going to add things to God's Word and, and create a list of rules and regulations that I want to impose on you. And so I'll use a passage like this to say, well, if you don't do what I say... And so this passage has been misused oftentimes. In fact, there are a lot of religious leaders who have taught that this passage means that sinners will find grace when they come to faith, but that if you make the choice to sin after Jesus saves you, that there's no forgiveness anymore. Sometimes people misrepresent this passage by suggesting that some particular sins are forgivable, but that there is no forgiveness in certain other big ones, if we could call them that, I guess. You know, sins like murder, adultery, greed, Lingering too long and binging on Netflix, that sort of thing. Remember the context of what's happening here in Hebrews. We've just been through nine chapters demonstrating that Jesus is superior to everything. Whatever the world has to offer you, whether it's the religious system of making sacrifices down in Jerusalem that this audience was familiar with, or, or those other somethings in your life that call out to you and say, you know what, this is funner than Jesus. This brings more satisfaction than Jesus. Before you were a Christian, don't you remember how great this was? And there's all those somethings that call out to you. In the context of Hebrews, he's speaking to this and he's shown us that Jesus is superior to all of that. And so this passage... Uh, in, in this passage, the author of Hebrews has, has eloquently so far taken us through that journey, but there, there are many who have received the knowledge of the truth, and, and in the context of Hebrews, they were tempted to walk away. They were tempted to, to give in because of the, 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 the persecution that they were facing. Now this passage is not talking about giving in to temptation, and as, as all of us have done. That's sin, and, and it's wrong, 
and it calls for a contrite heart, but what it's being described here in Hebrews chapter 10 is something different than that. Here there's a warning to us against the sin of deliberately choosing to abandon Christ. Even after receiving the knowledge of the good news of what He's done for us. When he says that there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, what he's driving home is that if you reject the, the, the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus has offered through His own blood, then, then there is nowhere else for you to go. If you hear the Gospel of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf on the cross and say, eh, I'm going to go look somewhere else. He says there, there's nowhere else that you can go. This is the greatest sacrifice. This is the greatest, most supreme gift that God has given to us. If Jesus is not enough, then nothing is. Without Christ, all that is left for us is the certainty of God's judgment. And so in verses 28 and 29, he makes a comparison by showing, by showing the strict judgment that took place under the law of Moses. Uh, probably there's a, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that he probably has in mind where a certain law was broken, uh, a violation of one of God's commands that, that blasphemed uh, Yahweh, the, the king of Israel, their God. And, and so when this took place, that there was strict punishment. And it was a death sentence. And there was no mercy. Sure, a person might find forgiveness from, from God Himself and and. But, but as far as the escape from the, the death penalty, there was none. If, if you committed this, once you, you came and, and you, were, you had two or three witnesses that came against you, under the Old Testament law, you could cry out for mercy once you realized what the consequences were going to be, but there was no mercy in those situations. And the point in Hebrews that he's making is this. If that was the expected judgment for disregarding the Old Testament law, how much more worse is the punishment for disregarding Jesus? Under the Old Testament, we had temporary sacrifices. We had high priests that repeated their offerings every year. But now we have a high priest who has offered his own blood once for all, and he's entered into heaven itself and is in the very throne room of our God. And if the punishment for, for disobeying and disregarding and utterly shaking your fist at God in the Old Testament was so severe, how much more so when we reject and walk away from Jesus, the Son of God. It's not only an affront to His person, as pointed out here in the passage, it's not only an affront to His work on the cross and the blood that He's offered for us, but He also points out that it's an outrage against the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Notice that He calls Him in this passage the Spirit of Grace. And there's an, there's an emphasis here on those three things. The sin being dealt with in this passage is like stomping the Son of God. It's like throwing Jesus on the ground and trampling on Him. It profanes the sacrifice by which one is made holy. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has lavished His grace. The Holy Spirit pours out His kindness. But the one here who goes on sinning deliberately has taken the most kind, the most gracious gift that has ever been given to humanity and thrown that back in the face of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace. So understand that when we talk about justice, and we talk about justice in a passage like this, I, I, I understand, and I think you're all aware and, and know that, that the, world, the world does not like this concept. In fact, we buck at it in our culture. We like our freedoms. 
We, like, um, we don't like the, the idea of accountability. For someone to come and say, that's sin and you're going to be judged for this, we, we revolt at that. The world likes us to imagine a God who is all love and never judges, and he will never, and, 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 and that he will always, he will always let all of us escape from sin with no consequence. Even, even though we ourselves cry out for punishment when we see injustice in this world. And, and if you don't think that we do that, and that's really what our hearts cry out for, just sit in front of any news network for eight hours. I, I, I dare you. Sit in front of any news network for eight hours, and if your heart doesn't cry out at least one time for justice during that time, then you don't realize how depraved the human race is and how horrible sin is. We cry out for justice. We see murders. We see shootings in schools. We see the violence on the streets. And our hearts cry out and say, what's to be done? Something needs to be carried through about this. And if those people came into a court system and the court said, eh, you know, no big deal. You just killed 40 kids, but we love you. You go be a better person now. What would happen? We would cry out for the injustice that took place. We ourselves, we long for justice. We just don't want it for ourselves. But God his justice and His righteousness, the Scripture teaches us, is perfect. And coupled with this is the truth that He lavishes His grace upon the world and through the sacrifice of Christ, He offers mercy to anyone who would believe in Jesus because Jesus took the punishment upon Himself. In the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, when He shed His blood, He paid the penalty. He satisfied the justice of God so that I wouldn't have to pay that price for eternity. That was His great love for us. And so when we go on sinning deliberately, even after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is an expectation of God's judgment and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My mother warned me about sticking my fingers in the plug outlet. So what did I do? (laughs) You think I did it? I didn't. I did not put my fingers in the plug outlet. I waited until she turned her back to the stove, and I went the other direction, and I went to the kitchen drawer, and I pulled out a twisty tie from one of those old bread bags. I wasn't going to put my fingers in there, but I still wanted to see what was going to happen. And so I, I put both prongs, I folded it in half, put both prongs into both holes of that little tiny semiconductor, and it shot me across the kitchen, it charred my hand. And the next thing I remember was being held in my mother's arms, being rocked back and forth as she considered whether to take me to the hospital or not. You see, loving mother that she was, she picked me up and comforted me, took care of my wounds. There was no more harsh rebuke, but a lot of comfort. You see, the warning here in Hebrews, it, it's real. It, it's just as real, more so than my mother warning me of that thing on the wall. You see, God understands He understands the judgment to come. The author of Hebrews understood the real risk that this congregation of Jewish people was facing of God's judgment if they were to walk away from Jesus and and, and go back to the old system. A very real risk of judgment for for us if we would say, you know what? I don't don't want this Jesus stuff. my, My old life was better and I'm going back to it. This isn't just a rhetorical point in the book of Hebrews. He's not just trying to make an argument for, you know, get their attention. It is that, but it's real. 
And it must be considered. And the warning must take place in every single one of our lives with great earnestness and with great sobriety. Now, as we approach this, uh, there, there are two big questions that have been asked about these verses over the centuries. The, the wording here is, is tough. I have to admit, this is probably the hardest passage of Hebrews I've had to deal with in, in this entire series we've been doing throughout 2022. Um, and so there's two questions here. The first is, who is committing this deliberate ongoing sin that's described here in this passage? Is this to unbelievers? Is this to fake Christians that are kind of live it out, but they aren't really believers in Jesus Christ? Or is this a passage written to believers, people who have truly followed and trusted in Christ? And the second question, um, what is the, the judgment that's being described? And again, in all honesty, I think this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Hebrews, if not all of the New Testament. And so what I'd like to do is just briefly Allow me to explain three ways that others have answered these questions. Three ways from people that I highly respect. I respect their, the soundness of their theology and their teaching, but they come to this passage in, with some different nuances. And so um, I'd like to present three views on, on what this passage is doing, and then I'll summarize what I believe we can all agree on, whichever one of those interpretations you think is the best here. The first approach to these verses is that this passage is speaking to those who have not come to faith yet. They've heard, they've understood the good news about Jesus, but they've persisted in rejecting God's grace. They've heard the Gospel and they've said, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I learned that in Sunday school. Did that with Easter, Christmas. Do that, you know, but not for me. I've heard the good news. I understand what He did. I understand what the church says. I understand what the Bible preaches. But I reject God's grace. And the judgment being referred to here is what the rest of the Bible calls hell. Hell was created for Satan, but when mankind rebelled against our Creator, we chose God's wrath. God warned us and said, if you do this, it's death. And we did it anyway. And the human race became the enemy of God. And so hell became ours. In God's love for us, though, He Himself took on flesh. He loved us so much that Jesus Christ became a man and He provided the way. He Himself bore the wrath and He paid the penalty for our sins. And so the teaching of of Scripture is that God offers to us His grace. He offers to us mercy. But most of the world instead says, no, I still choose sin. I still choose to be an enemy of God. And my friend, what we have to understand whether this is the, the, the point of this passage, it, it's still taught throughout all of Scripture. If you reject this gift, what you choose is to trample underfoot the Son of God and there remains a fearful expectation of judgment. The second understanding of these verses is that this passage is speaking to those who have joined the church community. They, they've spent time learning from God's Word. They have heard the good news about Jesus. They've they've made a profession of faith and they claim to believe in Jesus, they may even be convinced in their own minds that they've believed in it all. But what they believed was all head knowledge. Pastor Jared shared with us from James the other day, a couple weeks ago. He talked about the difference between, he said, between faith and works and faith that doesn't work and faith that does work. That, that in James, he says, you know, there's, even, the, even Satan believes in Jesus. Even Satan believes in God. 
and he shudders. He's not saved. And because, just because I believe something up here and understand all the facts, it doesn't mean that I'm genuinely a believer in Jesus Christ and have received His forgiveness. Because you see, it's all head knowledge and they've believed in the facts about Jesus, but this person has never repented of their sin. And so they may have been in the church their entire life, but this individual has still not sought God's mercy and instead has only imitated a form of godliness, denying the power of the Gospel. This is the individual that's 18 inches away from eternal life because they understand the facts here, but they've never responded to sin in their own heart. And then at some point, they face some temptation like these early Hebrews were facing. And this person deliberately chooses to sin by walking away from Christ. By their continual persistence in sinning against Him, they demonstrate that they were never truly a follower of Jesus Christ in the first place. It was just all head knowledge. And so Hebrews warns them that the Lord will judge and they are in danger of the fires of hell. The third interpretation of these verses, though, is that, that this passage is speaking about genuine believers in Jesus. And these believers face temptations like we all do, but, but they choose sin over Christ. Perhaps it's heretical theology. Perhaps it's willful, sinful behavior. And, and it's persistent, continual sin. Perhaps it's a return to their old lifestyle. And the sin continues on deliberately in spite of all that Christ has done for them. In spite of the kindness and the grace of the Holy Spirit. My friends, let us not think that God leaves sin unchecked. There are a lot of people who say, I I'm saved. I've received Jesus' for forgiveness. And so I know He'll forgive this sin that I'm going to persist in. And things are going to be just fine because I still have heaven. And though true believers in Jesus Christ will never cease to be His children, the Bible teaches us that He will discipline those whom He loves in order to bring them back. And for the one who continues on in their sin against Him, even when He, he disciplines and calls us and beckons us to obey Him, this person is playing games with God's vengeance. And I believe that there are Christians who are persistent in this deliberate kind of sin and, and there comes a point where God says that's enough. And I've known people that he's taken them home. So I'm not going to, no longer going to let you make a mockery of my name. And on top of this, there's the judgment of lost opportunities in this life, lost joy in walking with him, not to mention the loss of rewards in the life to come. There are some other approaches that others have taken as they seek to understand this passage, but, but these are the three answers to those questions that seem to be the most responsible with the text as I've, I've studied it. Again, this is a difficult passage, and each, each view has some strong merits and some questions that it brings up, but, uh, and, and made by teachers and pastors that I highly re respect. Uh, I lean toward the latter two views. Uh, I don't think even, I, as much as I've studied that, this passage and, and know that this sermon was coming for the last few months, I, I still don't think I can say, here's where I'm at on this one. Uh, it's a tough one, uh, and we'll continue to study that, but... But allow me to express what we can all agree on, whichever of those three interpretations you take. Because all three of those interpretations, I think, are consistent with the rest of Scripture. Whichever of those views is being emphasized here in Hebrews, um, we do know that sin is a horrible violation of God's character. It's an awful violation of His holiness. And our Creator, as much as He loves us, as much as He has lavished His grace toward us, He is perfect also in His justice. And He will never dismiss sin 
like we do. His judgment is real, and his judgment is perfect. And in his kindness and love, he gives us warnings like the one that we find here. And this is him crying out, Don't do that! It will hurt. It will be bad. And so, my friends, my encouragement to you today is in light of the warning that's here, that you would earnestly and soberly consider your own sin. Each one of us. If you've not turned from your sin and you've not found forgiveness through Christ, then my prayer for you is that you would find his mercy today. If you've not turned from your sin and found forgiveness, then find His mercy. Perhaps this is the first time that you've even heard that there's good news. Perhaps if you looked at your own sin and, and thought, this is hopeless. Maybe I'll be good enough. Maybe the scales will outweigh one another. And the Bible tells us that there, there's no scales. That we are lost in our sins. The penalty for our sin is death. But in God's grace, He has provided the way by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for us who satisfied the wrath of God. And perhaps this is the first time that you've realized that the perfect Son of God provided the way for your sins to be taken away. My prayer is that you would not deliberately turn away from Him and reject the Spirit of grace, but receive the forgiveness that He offers to you today. And in the same way, there's some of you here today, and perhaps you've realized that, that you've been doing this whole church thing for years. You've been imitating what others have done. Perhaps you've gone through the motions and you've said the right words. You believe the right things. You believe the right facts. But you're sitting here right now and the realization has come to you that, that you have never truly responded to Him in faith. There's never been a, a brokenness over your sin. There's never been a, a realization that, that I have to turn from this. I need a solution to this problem of sin in my life. And I have never dealt with that. Don't, don't keep going through the motions. Understand the incredible warning this, this passage gives to us. And don't walk away only to return to the life that you've embraced before. The judgment that you face is eternal. But again, His grace is offered to you right now. And then thirdly, maybe, maybe you've trusted in Christ. You've become a Christian. But perhaps there's sin in your life now. Maybe it's just something that started. Maybe it's just something that you didn't intend and it, it came up. And perhaps it's something that you've been dealing with for a while. Something that you have been keep on coming back to and it causes great pain in your heart. Or maybe something that you've been dealing with and, and continuing in and you're letting it linger. My friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, let us not, let us not think that we shall escape God's discipline in our lives. Let us not think that we are exempt. We, we need to respond to what He tells us here just, with just as much sobriety. If the leaders of Israel who rebelled against God in the wilderness, there's a passage where they, they questioned Moses, they called in to question Aaron, and it tells us that they, they directly rebelled against God. It's one of the passages that he's alluded to in the, in the book of Hebrews. In this instance, God judged those individuals. These, they were leaders. People that the, the entire nation of Israel had followed out of Egypt. They'd followed them through the Red Sea. These were leaders of Israel, and they came to a point that said, you know what, we're going to do it our way. And God had them stand alone, and He had Aaron and Moses stand on another side, and the, 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 
it tells us that, that the, the earth opened up and swallowed them. And God judged them. Leaders of the commun- their communities that people had followed for years. And if God did this in the days of Moses, how much more shall we face real consequences for our sin? We are those who have received the knowledge of the truth more so than anyone else. We have been declared friends of God We have been declared righteous. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have received His grace, then you have received this forgiveness and the righteousness that can only come from Him. Not only all of this, but we have a high priest who stands before the throne of God praying for us, as Hebrews has argued in these last few chapters. We have become partakers in a new covenant And so how much more shall we face the judgment of our Lord if we choose to continue in sin? I'm not talking about eternal hell. I'm not saying that this is talking about losing your salvation that God has given to you. But if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, do not think that you can sin in a vacuum. Almost 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that he entitled from this passage. It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, he preached about the dangers of God's judgment, and in very vivid terms, he warned his hearers regarding the wrath to come. People sometimes read that sermon today in an age where confrontation is unacceptable. We don't like confrontation, do we? We think it's rude. We think it's inexcusable. The idea of judgment and accountability are considered more offensive than all the filth that our society perpetuates. We're quite comfortable with a lot of other, other sins, but if you confront me about my sin, well, you can't do that. We're quite comfortable discussing the love of God, but how dare He have anything to say about my sin? And so many people read sermons like that of Pastor Edwards, and they, they imagine him preaching that message gleefully, spewing out words of wrath and delighting in the suffering of his audience. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, from other writings, we know that normally Jonathan Edwards was a, more of a softer-spoken preacher who, who read from note cards that were in front of him, spoke with a little bit of a softer voice. He disliked sermons about fire and the, the fire and brimstone variety. One commentator noted, therefore, we must understand that Jonathan Edwards' passionate love for God and his flock was the reason he employed every tool in his considerable stores of logic and metaphor to plead for his people's souls in sinners in the hands, in the hands of an angry God. He was less concerned with God's wrath than with his grace, which was freely extended to sinners who repented. Jonathan Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. It's certainly the same for the author of Hebrews. We come to this passage. I, I don't believe that, 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 that this author is writing this going, oh, I'm going to make their lives miserable. I, I don't think he, he was writing this going, I wonder how many sermons are going to be preached about this passage and how miserable that's going to make them that week. I, I, that, I don't think that's what's happening here. His objective is not to beat people into submission, but to convey the wonders of the Spirit's kindness. His love for us is the driving force behind such a harsh warning like the one that we encounter today. Whether you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you think that you're a follower but you've deceived yourself and you're just imitating all this stuff, or whether you are genuinely a follower of Him and you have trusted Christ as your Savior. In whatever category you find yourself, understand that God takes sin 
with great earnestness and great seriousness. And like a loving parent who earnestly warns the Hebrews and us of danger. We'll see in the next few verses that we're going to look at next Sunday how he quickly turns from this warning to bringing them comfort. These tender words of comfort coupled with the harsh sting of the warning in this passage, they compel us to continue in earnestness, to continue in our endurance for the preservation of our souls. So let us carefully listen to His Word. And my prayer is that it might transform each one of us by His grace. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we, we come before You today and we thank You. We thank You for Your great love for us. We thank You that You sent Your Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. But we also thank You for passages like this which might make us a little uncomfortable wherever we're at in our relationship with You. Because we sin. It permeates our lives in more ways than we like to admit. And if we don't take it with great seriousness, Lord, we understand that there are consequences. We understand that there will be discipline or even eternal judgment. And so, Father, it is my prayer that we would recognize the loving care that You've given to us by calling our sin out. Might we take a warning like this one with as much seriousness as You do. I pray that it would cause us to repent of our sin, to confess our sin, to seek to walk with You, and to enjoy the joy of Your salvation. Lord, please glorify Yourself in our lives. And I pray that You would take this Your Word. Might You bring about great grace and transformation in each one of us as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. It's in His name we pray. Amen. If you would please stand.